My bookstore is open. It's about time. Everything that we've so far stocked upon the shelf is either my own original publication or literature which has greatly inspired my own research. There are already several books available for purchase and a great many more being worked on. I'm particularly excited to premiere a restored names edition of the Aramaic Targum, putting Yahuwah the Most High Elohim back into the Lord God. But then there are the volumes of extra-canonical literature which are already being put out, each of which comes from my own personal collection, is sectioned off by genre, and has been likewise edited so that names of its key players might be restored to health. And let's not forget the one you were all hoping for, Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood. The wait is over. One of the ways you can support this ministry is by picking up your very own copy. I do appreciate your generosity. Shalom. Shalom, everybody. This is a little bit different tonight because I am not speaking in front of a live audience. Usually I'm responding to that energy in the room. You know, we'll nab 20, 30 people into a room and I'll read off a paper. And I'm just here with Josh tonight. I really appreciate all the, the work that Josh puts into these recordings. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all these videos on YouTube. All right. From the beginning, I need to make this clear. I one of the last... English-speaking people in the world who has never seen The Da Vinci Code. I've never read the book by Dan Brown, none of its sequels, never seen the Ron Howard film. I've never got into the Holy Grail lore. Uh, you know, back in the day, I read a lot of Arthurian stuff, but none of that comes into this. It's been a few years now that I have been asking the question, could Messiah possibly have had a wife? And I've been sitting on that because I really don't know how to answer it. According to Torah, he has full rights to have a wife, in my opinion. But Scripture doesn't necessarily record that he had a wife, or does it? It was actually quite recently that I came upon some information in the Song of Solomon, of all places, which we'll talk about in this book. Or I should say in this... Uh, see, I'm, I'm off my game tonight. This is awful. All right. Well, here it is. With no further ado, Mary Magdalene, wife of Messiah. Or is it wife of Messiah? Because there's a question mark there. Kind of leaves it up to grabs. By yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. It was first published on June 15th, 2022. Since that time, I've been making a lot of additions to this. It's it's probably tripled in length. And I'm not going to be reading the whole paper tonight. I'm only going to be reading the first part. There's some of the second part that I'm going to leave for the next video, which is perfectly fine because there's enough material here and I still need to write some more um, information for the second part. As you can see, there's the contents. We're on page three. We'll be going over all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. You can read along in the, I'll be adding this PDF file below the YouTube video so you can read along. All right, starting out page five, the Orwellian 
and Miriam of Migdal. Miriam Magdalene was a whore. Mind you, those aren't my words. I am simply quoting a long history within the Roman Catholic Church. Stop mixing me up with the Pope, why don't you? The vicar doesn't speak for me, nor I him. Actually, I sat here for quite some time this morning, wondering how to address this issue at hand. I could show you a list of paintings where Magdalene is exposing her breasts for the painter, but this is a family-friendly publication. Oh, I'm sure women were throwing their bras at Yahusha wherever he went. That was sarcasm, by the way. The point needs to be made, though. Mary Magdalene was framed. And why is that? I have my suspicions. Perhaps you do too, which is why we're here, to take up the sleuth work again. One potential explanation is that the Roman Catholic Church was simply projecting themselves onto others when thrusting Mary Magdalene into the red light district. But why target her specifically? You will accuse me of beating around the bush. Get to it, Noel. We all know what you're thinking. Why not just state what you mean? Well, for starters, I have questions without answers. The question before us is whether or not Yahusha HaMashiach had a wife. And if so, was Miriam it? Technically, those are two questions. Three, now that I think upon it, did he marry Miriam of Bethany or Miriam Magdalene? But also, were both Miriams the same Miriam? If you're doing the math, that's four questions, which I hope to answer over the course of this investigation. We are currently on the second paragraph, and so far, I don't have answers for you. Perhaps this will change before this is over. For clarification, I am one of the few remaining people in the English-speaking world who has never read the Da Vinci Code, nor have I seen any of the Ron Howard films from the same book series, which include Tom Hanks. Therefore, I haven't sold out. My interest in a potential union between Yahusha HaMashiach and Miriam or Miriam, or any other Shebrew woman, for that matter, stems from personal curiosity. I am not a Trinitarian. Elohim is not three dudes in heaven. I take scripture at its word when stating that Yahusha is the only begotten son of the Father, just as assuredly as the Ruach HaKadosh is feminine and the mother of Yasharel. We are dealing with the Holy Family in heaven. If this is all news to you, then I would suggest you have some homework to do. At present, I take no issue in the father handing a bride to his son. You will tell me about Genesis 6 and the watchers taking human wives and how that disproves the son of Elohim having one. It disproves nothing. I suppose we'll have to get to that. One thing at a time, though, and also for further clarity, I have no evidence whatsoever in sacred scripture sacred tradition, or any other historical resources that Yahusha and Miriam or Miriam sired a child together, or children. Not yet. If I do happen to find one, then I will let you know. Attempting to prove some sort of hidden genealogy of messianic babies is not my agenda. What I am mainly interested in is finding any credibility to the notion that Yahusha either had a wife or intended to take a wife? And if so, has the identity of that person been given to us? Right about now, you might be saying to yourself, my poor eyes, 
What in the world did I just scroll past? Think about the children. That was my first reaction when stumbling upon this stuff too. They are all attributed to Miriam Magdalene, and she's hairy. And it's not like we're dealing with one artist either. Picture after picture, carving after carving, to the point that it's practically a genre unto itself, which people today refer to as Harry Mary. Apparently, artists needed to grow her hair out because she couldn't keep her clothes on. That must be it. But then look closer. The hair isn't simply flowing from her head. No, Harry Mary is a hairy beast. The title you are looking for is Wild Man. If you're not aware, the Wild Men were the Sasquatches of their day. They are even described in the earliest known literature. The Epic of Gilgamesh has divine beings creating a wild man named Ikindu to confront Gilgamesh, a probable stand-in for Nimrod, over his insistence to order every woman he fancies into his own bed, even the married ones. The situation initially backfires on everyone when Gilgamesh and the wild man meet. They begin wrestling and within seconds enter into a homosexual bromance. I have quite the collection of wild men artwork, most of which derives from medieval books. I've showed some of them on this channel. And what is abundantly apparent is that wild men were seen as subhuman creatures who needed refined into something of a human. And if that wasn't possible, they were hunted or burned at the stake. Why would the Roman Catholic Church finance artwork which depicted Mary and Magdalene in the lights of mockery? And then I stumbled upon what may very well be a depiction of her in the Babylonian Talmud. And this is what it says. When Rav Yosef reached this verse, he cried, But there are those swept away with justice. He said, Is there one who goes before his time and dies for no reason? The Gemara answers, Yes, like this incident of Rav Bievi Bar Abai. I'm butchering that, but it is what it is, who would be frequented by the company of the angel of death and would see how people died at the hands of this angel. The angel of death said to his agent, go and bring me, kill Miriam the razor, braider of women's hair. He went, but instead brought him Miriam, the razor of babies. The angel of death said to him, I told you to bring Miriam, the razor of women's hair. His agent said to him, if so, return her to life. He said to him, since you have already brought her, let her be counted towards the number of decreased people. Apparently, this woman died unintentionally. And it goes on from there. The scene involves a conversation between Rav Biavai Bar Abay, a Jewish Talmudist who apparently lived in 4th century Babylon, and the angel of death. When death asked the son of Ab Bay for Miriam the braider of women's hair, he instead brings her Miriam the razor of babies, which only seems to frustrate death further. Miriam Megala Sierra is interpreted here to mean braider of gro braider or grower of women's hair. Adorable. Yet another encounter with Harry Mary. What sort of person is better suited to the part of hairdresser and wig donor than a wild woman? But even that is a pro uh, probable misdirection. I did some digging, and Magdalene in the Talmud is more likely derived from the expression curling women's hair, which is the same thing as saying adulteress.
And then one day it occurred to me that truth is certainly stranger than fiction, but it is also more often than not propagated to us in opposites. Being given the mysteries of heaven and then told not to believe any of it is a pastime prerequisite. Meanwhile, here on earth, every king has his queen. Well, the same can be said of heaven. Adam I was a priest and king over humanity from paradise in heaven, and he was gifted with a queen by his creator. Didn't our Messiah teach us how to pray with words containing the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven? He did. As I have repeatedly pointed out, the millennial kingdom of Messiah happened on the earth. And so, why shouldn't the second Adam have a queen to rule alongside of him? The following is my report. All right, we are on page 11, the Song of Shaloma Connection. That's the same thing as the Song of Solomon. My scavenger hunt took on new life of its own with Shir Hashir. <laughs> I won't even try to pronounce that. I'm sorry. The Song of Solomon of all places. And of course, that would be Song of Solomon in English. In it, we read the following. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night between my breasts. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Nearly every translation reads slightly different, but they all depict the same scene. The king's lover approaches him while he reclines at his table. Some translations say couch, but it's no different. The Hebrew noun there it is, refers to a dining couch. The banquet table, as well as its cushions and pillows, are all inclusive. He's not seated alone either. The king's entourage is gathered in a circle around him. When approaching the king among his closest advisors, the woman is making their petrolo known. Nard held an erotic fragrance. It was a perfume worn by women at banquets because of its seductive charms. I have found no other connotation but a sexual one. And again, when you read the gospel accounts, they always kind of dismiss that. But if you read about anywhere else, it's, it's purely sexual. Just a side note from what I can find. And it didn't come cheap either. The um, aromatic oil is extracted from the, how do you pronounce this? The valerian, whatever, blah, 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 plants, and was imported from the Himalayan region of India. Cracking one of those bottles open meant business. The nard giving forth its fragrance tells the reader that she is ready to enjoy her, her betrothed in a sexual way. Her intent is made known when she claims, he shall lie all night betwixt my breast. The nard was offered to the king so that he might officiate their union that very night. Here are two further translations. You can see one is from the Sefer, the other is from the New Living Translation. The Sefer says, Still the king's divin sends forth the scent of him from the spikenard he gave me. And the NLT says, the king is lying on his couch, again, the table, enchanted by the fragrance of my perfume. The Sefer claims the spikenard, which the woman offered, was first given to her by the king, further cementing the notion that the costly perfume was a circular mechanism of their betrothal. The king being enchanted by its fragrance in the New Living Translation makes a conclusion to nearly any deductive reasoning an obvious one. 
the spikenard had always been intended for his arousal. Who is the identity of Shaloma's lover exactly? That has long been a debated question. In the game of cold and hot, many have claimed she is Pharaoh's daughter, to which I would say getting colder. Pharaoh's daughter arrives on the scene two chapters too late, in my opinion. Here is where we read about her. And Shaloma made affinity with Pharaoh's king of Mitraim and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he made an end of building his own house and the house of Yahuwah and the wall of Yerushalayim round about, 1 Kings 3, 1. The true identity of Shaloma's lover can be found in the provided painting. Why is she cuddling with an old man while naked? Hold on, I'm about to tell you. Also, I thought it best to add a censor or two for my more delicate audience. If I thought to include it, it's because we are gazing in upon a scene in the Bible. As I was saying, Pharaoh's daughter arrives on the scene two chapters too late. The woman pictured is Avishag the Shumite, or I guess the, the Shunamith. And contextually speaking, there is so much more going on with her. And we are reading from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my Adonai the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in your bosom, that my Adonai the king may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coast of Yasharel. I always wonder why it had to be the coast of Yasharel, not the internal country, but whatever. And found uh, Avishag, a Shunamith, or, you know, Avishag, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair and cherished the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. Then Abanayahu, the son of Chagath exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. First Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Do you see what I did here, there? I read right on through the story of a very cold David and the naked nurse who warmed him, and then kept on reading for another verse. That wasn't an accident. It says Adani Yahu. That's kind of a cool name. Adoni Yahu wanted to be king as soon as the old man was gone. If you keep reading another few verses, you will come to learn that Adoni Yahu was born unto David after Absalom. Absalom and Adoni Yahu were brothers. And seeing how Absalom was dead, Adoni Yahu figured it was his turn to make a move. Another clue as to what is happening. Do you remember Absalom's deed after forcibly taking his father's throne? We read about it in 2 Samuel 16, 22, and it says, So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went into, in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Yasharel. He took his father's women by force as well. And just as importantly, he committed the deed in the sight of all Yasharel rather than in secret. That's how he let everyone know that he was wearing the big boy pants now. You will recall that Ham did the same thing. He exposed his father's nakedness and then let his brothers know about it. Noah then acknowledged having a fourth child 
who was simultaneously his grandchild. Noah's wife would have been defiled after Ham slept with her, which explains why he never had any other sons, or I guess you could say daughters as well. He could never intimately know her again. And it's not like there were other women on the earth apart from his own wives, apart from his own son's wives. It was the same with David. After Absalom's transgression, he never knew them again, at least his concubines. So while Abishag was busy delivering the body heat that David needed, Adoniyahu figured he could claim his place as heir apparent and put on a feast for all his brothers, excluding Shaloma, of course. That right there tells us Adoniyahu knew he was usurping the throne. It was this action which prompted Nathan the prophet to warn Bathsheba that she and her son would die if Adoniyahu ascended to the throne. In turn, David declared Shaloma king. Adoniyahu, however, being a, as cunning as he was half-witted, wasn't quite through with his scheming. Avishag was on his mind. And this is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And Adoniyahu, the son of Chagath, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Shaloma. And she said, come you peaceably? And he said, peaceably. He said, moreover, I have somewhat to say unto you. And she said, say on. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Yasharel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Howbeit, the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it was his from Yahuwah. And now I ask one petition of you, deny me not. And she said unto him, say on. And he said, speak, I pray you, unto Shalom of the king, for he will not say nay, that he give me Avishag to be my woman. There is so much going on in Adoniyahu's subconsciousness I'm afraid to even tap into it, lest I never get out. How could the kingdom possibly be his to begin with if Yahuwah had already declared the kingdom to be Shalomas? Seems like Adoniyahu has a case of cognitive dissonance, and that's a headache. In making the case that Yasharel had set their faces upon him, he is similarly claiming that the Most High Elohim needn't govern them when he is completely capable of the task. But clearly, his kingdom had been stolen from him by another kingdom entirely, which is Yahuwah's. And so, notice his sly request. He wanted the virgin, Avishag, for his own. And why is that? Shaloma figured it out and had him put to death. That is the context behind Song of Shaloma. Others wanted Shaloma's lover for themselves so that they might usurp his throne, thereby making the kingdom of heaven their own. I will be told nothing like that happened in the life of Yehusha HaMashiach, particularly where a wife is concerned. Oh, certainly, they murdered the son of Elohim. The reason why is because they hated the father and the father's law, which Yehusha held them to, and also because they wanted the kingdom of heaven for their own. Many people claim the gospel is good news, but when push comes to shove, is it really? I figure many holy men will have him crucified all over again if he were to return and tell us pork was off the menu. Well, I'm here to tell you that Yahusha did have a betrothed, and they did make a move on her. Because after all, what better way to usurp the throne but to claim his lover as their own? All right, we are on page 17, the woman and the alabaster jar. 
Perhaps you already know where I'm going with this. I checked. Nard is only used on two separate instances in the entirety of canon. Song of Shaloma and two of the four Gospels. Marcus and Yochanan. The same event happens in uh, Matif Yahu without ever mentioning the Nard. Same event, though. So I guess you could say three. Yochanan, however, is probably the most important. You shall see why in a little while. Here is how Yochanan put it. And one of the parashim, the Pharisees, desired him that he would eat with them. Yehusha, of course. And he went into the parashim's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Yehusha sat to eat in the parashim's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spoke with himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Gospel of Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 39. Oops, <laughs> I read from Lucas rather than your canon. How embarrassing. We should try this again. The mix-up happens sometimes. What I just quoted from is a completely different story, or is it? The story is told completely out of order from the feet anointing story in other Gospels. This fact has been long noted. But if we pay heed to certain details, then we shall certainly come to find that they are indeed the same. Only the inattentive or untrained eye will come to any other conclusion. Yahushua is eating a meal at the table when a woman in that city enters the room to anoint his feet with a precious ointment from an alabaster box, using her hair. We are repeatedly reminded that she was a sinner. What sins did she commit? We are not told. It is only the Pharisee who calls her out on her transgressions without ever naming them. How convenient. For me, that beckons the question, did this woman trans transgress the oral law of the Pharisees, which is to say the Talmud, or the written law of Moshe. Those are two completely different laws. Transgressing the doctrines of men, such as the Talmud, is not a sin, whereas transgressing Torah is sin. But a true Pharisee would not be able to tell the difference. The house belongs to a certain Pharisee. His name is Shimon, the jar maker. No, we haven't read that far yet, but in a line or two, he will be identified. The context simply isn't given by Dr. Lucas, the historian here. The reason why Shimon invited Yahusha over is because Eliezer had only, or Lazarus, had only days earlier been raised from the dead. So too was the dead man invited. The dead man was a celebrity and a major driving force as to why the crucifixion of Yahusha was pushed forward. The dead man, Eliezer or, Eliezer or Lazarus, was presently sitting there eating with Yahusha. Also, the woman was his sister. Getting back to Lucas' account of things, we read, And Yahusha answering said unto him, Shimon, I have somewhat to say unto you. And he said, Rabbi, say on. Pause. You see, there he is, Shimon the Pharisee, continuing. And of course, this is Yahusha speaking. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50 and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. 
Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Shimon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, You have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Shimon, See this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed, she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. And they that sat to eat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lucas, or the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I had asked the question regarding transgressing the law, which law, heaven or man, because the woman is Miriam. You shall see for yourself in a little while. Yahushua and Miriam are already recorded in the other Gospels as having an important encounter together before this little episode. You would never get the sense from Lucas's account, but Miriam comes across as perfectly respectable. Regardless, Yahushua doesn't deny she is a woman who has sinned aplenty, telling us the law of Moshe has been transgressed rather than the Talmud. He even turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. So her reputation was true then. She was a sinner. Why didn't he forgive her days or weeks or even months earlier? He did. The argument Yahushua is giving is a circular one. The proof is in the pudding. The woman was showing a great display of love because her great many sins had already been forgiven and not the other way around. Whatever these sins were, and we are not told, had already happened long ago. Reputations are a fingerprint and a gripe, and Simon the Pharisee simply had a neg 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 negligible time in forgetting. Here's a hint, though. Simon was siding with her rapist. Why was the woman weeping? According to Lucas, one might defer the context to one of sorrow and repentance. But again, Yahushua had already stated that her response was one of love due to her already being forgiven. When telling her, your sins are forgiven, he may in fact have been lifting her up for his audience. Because look at their response. The, Pharisee were, the Pharisees were not willing that Yahushua should forgive her. They did not feel she was worthy to wash his feet with the ointment from the alabaster jar using her hair. Yahushua's message to Shimon is even more perplexing. Shimon did not wash his feet with his hair and tears as the woman had. What sort of dude would do that? Serious question. That's an extremely sensual action. Truth in plain sight, though we are asked repeatedly by the church to deny it. Don't tell me this was the Middle East and that they didn't sexualize everything like we do today. Quite contrarily, have you been to the Middle East? I have. And I'm not talking about the LGBTQ plus beaches of Tel Aviv either. How about anywhere in the world before the 20th century? A woman's unbound hair was reserved only for her husband. Yes, that is precisely what everyone in the room was thinking. Oh, I'm sure Yahushua was just way ahead of the game in women's lib, nearly 2,000 years in fact. 
that ancient ongoing fight against toxic masculinity. And only Miriam got it, whereas the Pharisees and his Talmudine didn't. The boys down at seminary sure get it, though. That must be it. The hair-mopping event has long implied that her former sins were of the central nature. And yet, the more I read of this event, especially when compared with the other three, a, a surer picture begins to form. The complete opposite was true. The issue was over Messiah's betrothed. They didn't accept her. Yahusha used that opportunity to memorialize her for the ages. Lucas does give us a clue as to the weeping woman's identity. It happens a couple of chapters later when Yahusha enters the home of Martha and her sister Miriam. And we read in chapter 10, verses 38 through 41, Now it came to pass as they went, that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Miriam, which also sat at Yahushua's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Adonai, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Yahushua answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Miriam has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Ah, there it is. The disputed passage among many a housewives to date. Why did Martha get stuck with the apron and the dirty dishes? Every Martha has a sister like Miriam, do they not? You know what I'm talking about, ladies. Always getting out of the housework always stealing the eye of the handsome lad while you're in the back room making things happen. Don't even get me started. Martha's observation delivers the philosophical question of the ages. What would have happened if Martha also had decided to sit down at Yahushua's feet? The fog remains because the context is too taboo to be answered. In Yahushua's words, the part which Miriam has chosen would not be taken away from her. And you know what that means. The irony is that many have tried to take the role away from her, a role which she alone was called to and, in return, had chosen. Miriam's close proximity to Yahushua's words is a pointed connection to Miriam of Migdal, but we shall have to save that address for another moment because, if I'm not mistaken, the last woman to sit at the feet of Yahushua was the weeping woman. Not a coincidence. The woman is Miriam, the sister of Eliezer or Eliazar or Lazarus. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. You still don't believe me, do you? So much demure. Wouldn't it be the first time? Well, stop doubting then, because Yochanan clears up any and all confusion when identifying her. Here is what he says. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Miriam and her sister Martha. It was that Miriam which anointed Adonai with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother, Eliezer, was sick. Yochanan, chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. There is only one woman who anointed Yahushua with nard, wiping his feet with her hair, not two. Yochanan offers us far more than most would bargain for when giving up her name. And yet, it is only Lucas's account which tells us Miriam washes feet with her tears. Why was she crying? You probably already have the answer. It's because she knew something which nobody else did. And why is that? Before I answer, do you recall who Yahushua cried for? Here's a hint. 
It's the shortest verse in biblical canon. Yahusha wept. Bezora, Yochanan, Gospel of John, 11.35, Sefer. Even sourcing the verse was longer. Who was he weeping for, though? You will have to read chapter 11 for yourself so that you can do your fact-checking while following along with my description of events. By the way, the account of Yahusha raising Eliezer from the dead occurs only in the Gospel of Yochanan. When Yahusha arrived at Bethany, he came to find that Eliezer was already laying in the grave for the matter of four days. By that time, many Yahudim had arrived to comfort his two sisters. It was Martha who went to meet Yahusha as soon as word hit the street that Adonai had arrived. Miriam, however, stayed behind in the house. Yahusha spoke to Martha about how he is the res resurrection and the life. He called for Miriam. Martha then relays the message to Miriam secretly, telling her, the rabbi is come and calls for you. As soon as she heard his request, Miriam arose and went out to meet him. We then read, Then Miriam was come where Yahushua was and saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Adonai, if you had been here, my brother had not died. When Yahushua therefore saw her, Miriam, weeping, and the Yahudim also weeping, which came with her, he groaning in his ruach and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Adonai, come and see. Yahushua wept. It was the sight of Miriam which brought him to tears. Sure, there were other Yahudim weeping. It's not like I neglected to mention, though, that they had arrived to comfort Martha and Miriam. The grief wasn't theirs to bear so much as they were weeping for the loss of the two sisters. More than likely, they put on a grand show. The only other time we ever read of Yahushua crying is in Lucas 19.41 when entering Yerushalayim days later. The reason is given to us. He was lamenting the divorce of Yehuda via the coming destruction of Yerushalayim. We again read that he wept tears when offering up prayers and petitions to the one who could save him from death according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. Assuredly, this is the occasion when he sweated blood. His tears are always over the issue of death as well as marriage, it seems. So again, I will inquire, why was Miriam crying when anointing him at the table? No other account mentions her tears, so it is worth asking now. Hold that thought, though. I will bring it around full circle. Finally, arriving at Yochanan's recounting of the Nard incident, we read. So this comes from Gospel of Yochanan, John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Then Yahushua, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Eliezer was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. There is Martha serving again. <laughs> but Eliezer was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Miriam a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Yahushua and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his Talmudim, Yehuda Iscariot, Shimon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. The scene plays out precisely the same way as Shaloma. 
nearly, a woman approaches Messiah while he reclines at the table, surrounded by his entourage. She then opens up a bottle of nard and anoints him with it, inciting a pleasant fragrance throughout the house. I will once again remind you of how sensual an act it would be for a woman to unpin her hair and let it hang freely, not to mention sopping it on a man's body. Everyone keeps claiming this is a sexually innocent encounter, that, o- that only a perverse mind would see it otherwise. And yet, I have never seen such an act attempted on the church pastor. Sure, let's see a woman go through with it in front of the congregation, or at the dining room table, surrounded by the elder board. Or how about if somebody else's wife did it? Oops, there it is. It is sensual. Only those wishful thinkers who avoid the elephant in the room could deny it. You will tell me that Yahushua is Elohim, but was he man or wasn't he? Did not Hasatan dare to tempt him? Why are women immune to temptation? We are not told how Shaloma's retinue responded, nor are we informed of everyone's reaction with Yahushua and Miriam. Here, at least, in this account, it is only Yehuda Iscariot who has a problem with the unfolding scene. The why is obvious. He is only interested in the money, her money. The opposite, however, can be said as true. Yehuda Iscariot has no interest in Yahushua's kingdom. None at all. His only enthusiasm is his own. Believe it or not, I have found a fascinating connection between Yehuda Iscariot and the financial dealings of Miriam. But again, one thing at a time. This is beginning to look like a long read. If a profound announcement has just been made that the heir to David's throne has declared his queen, then the mind of Yehuda Iscariot can apparently only maneuver to one place. His own personal inheritance is shrinking, financially speaking. Here is how the same scene plays out in the Gospel of Mark or Marcus. And being in Bethany in the house of Shimon the jar maker, there he is again. As he sat to eat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spiked nard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. In this version of the story, the woman is never identified as the sister of Lazarus. We know it is the same occasion, however, because the Passover is nearly upon them and Yahushua is in Bethany. There is Shimon again, connecting us back to the woman in Lucas. Rather than anointing the feet of Yahushua with her hair, as we saw in Yochanan, the woman cracks open the nard and anoints his head. No hair. So which is it then? His head or his feet? Hair or no hair? She anointed both. I figure it might have been slightly more awkward to dry his head with her hair. Perhaps she started with his head and then finished up with his feet. I don't know. I wasn't there. The other difference with Yochanan is that Marcus identifies more than one person who did not respond in kind. But this time, not even Yehuda Iscariot is identified. Therefore, if you're going to tell me that the potential betrothed is being downplayed by the writer, then so is Yehusha's betrayer. Just as assuredly as Yehusha's short parable is not given to Shimon. Not even Yochanan cared to mention who the other murmurs were. Only Yehuda Iscariot was on his mind. The choice details of each writer may be different, as well as the recollections, but even Marcus plays off as a cross-reference with Song of Shaloma. The third, or I guess you could say fourth and final witness, is 
Matithyahu, and he states, Now when Yehusha was in Bethany in the house of Shimon the jar maker, there he is again, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat to eat. But when his Talmudim saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Matthew, Yahoo, or the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Again, we are told of Shimon the Parashim and, and Jarmaker's house in Bethany. Everyone seems intent on identifying the host of this episode. The woman is once again unnamed, though, anointing the head of Yahusha with the precious ointment rather than drying his feet with her hair. Here the nard is nowhere mentioned, not even in the Hebrew. Also, the Talmudim, plural, are troubled by this action, implying a great deal many beyond his betrayer. Still the same story, though. You will tell me I am taking all of this out of context when, in fact, Yahusha explains precisely what is happening in the following verses, which I have suspiciously left out. And you have also dutifully noted that fact. No, I am simply cross-referencing Miriam with the Nard and the Song of Shaloma incident. The Bible is like poetry in that it rhymes. Since when has cross-referencing one parallel event with another ever been a crime? It hasn't let me down. I was saving Yahushua's response until now for a reason. This is what he told his disciples in the Gospel of Yochanan. Then said Yahushua, Let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Eliezer had been risen from the dead. I would imagine a resurrection event such as what had just occurred would cause anyone to relish joyfully at his return from the grave, especially his sister. Eliezer had become a witness to Yahushua's dealings in the kingdom to come. And now we know why Miriam was crying. Yahushua had earlier cried for the loss of her brother. Miriam, in turn, was mourning for the loss of Yahushua in front of the Talmudim, Eliezer, and the rest. Here's how Matif Yahu addresses the situation. When Yahusha understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she has wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she has poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Amen, I say unto you, Wheresoever this bezora shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman has done, be told for a memorial of her. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Maria performed her deed for his burial. Check. You will argue and tell me her deed cancels out any claim that a betrothal was being enacted based upon his explanation. No, it doesn't. What you need to be asking yourself is how Miriam was so certain that he was going to die in the first place and in the next few days as to go through with such a performance. Nobody else got it but Miriam. Imagine how many ways that could have gone wrong. She smothered Messiah with Nard in front of the Talmudim, in front of her brother Eliezer, probably in front of Martha, and at least one member of the Pharisees, if not a whole bunch of them, the last of whom belonged to a group uh, the, the last of whom belonged to a group, were actively seeking his death sentence. The only cross-reference any of them had was Song of Shaloma. There is a contrast being told to us, which is like saying Shaloma's lover 
opened up the nard in order that the king might recline in her breast later that evening, whereas Marion was pronouncing a tragedy. Her betrothed was about to be taken from her. Notice what follows. Yahushua tells the group, Wheresoever his gospel shall be preached in the whole world, what the woman has done would be told for a memorial for her. It is Miriam as well as her action, which is the memorial. He was lifting her up as his queen in the coming kingdom and in front of everyone. Her boldness would seem to imply that his anointing was either prearranged via private conversations or that she made the move out of throbbing sorrow, knowing that she was about to lose him. The man who would be crowned king did not excuse her. I will be told Yahushua's proclamation that her action would be a memorial of her wherever the gospel is preached is a false prophecy, if indeed the world doesn't recognize her as his betrothed. No, it simply means they either fail to see it or refuse to. Her action has been recorded in all four canonical gospels. Whether someone chooses to recognize her actions as a memorial of her is up to them. All right, we're on page 29, the wedding at Cana. Identifying the names of who was married at the wedding in Cana of Galilee is a long-held question which many have endeavored to answer. Speculation abounds regarding one of Yahushua's brothers, Yaakov, Yehuda, Yosef, or Shimon. This is based on the fact that Miriam, the mother of Yahushua, was actively involved in administering the ceremony. Perchance, it was one of his extra-canonical sisters, Shalom or Miriam. A lot of Miriams. My only problem with each of these explanations is that extra-canonical literature insists that the mother of Yahushua remained a virgin until the end of her days, designating each sibling mentioned as belonging to Yosef's former marriage. If this is news to you, then I've just handed you more homework. Get reading. I have thoroughly detailed this in past papers. Orwellian society has reversed everything. The Ruach HaKadosh identifies as a mother, but she's really a dude. Mary and Magdalene hung too often by the lamplight. Yahushua had no choice but to remain a virgin, being a Trinitarian, and contrarily, Miriam, his mother, couldn't amount to a lifelong virgin if she wanted to, seeing as how Yosef was sexually aroused with the choice mother of Elohim's only begotten, always pouncing upon her. Others have hypothesized the bridegroom to be Yochanan. This is partly based upon the fact that the bridegroom is never mentioned, and Yochanan later refers to himself as the disciple whom Yahushua loved rather than offering his name. There may be more to it than that, though. Yochanan was one of Zavidi's two sons. If Shalom was indeed the wife of Zavidi, as many suspect, then I'm more open to this mainstream explanation than any other. Shalom, or Salome, was one of Hannah's three daughters, the eldest of which was the virgin Miriam, thereby designating Yochanan and Yahusha as blood cousins. But then Yochanan tells us in his very last chapter that Cana was the hometown of Nathaniel. Is it a clue? This is what he says. There were together Shimon, Kepha, and Taom, that's Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the son of the sons of Zavidi, and two other of his Talmudim. Perhaps the wedding was his after all. Nathaniel had been called as one of his disciples only three days earlier. Is this why they were brought in to participate? Or did Yahushua offer Talmudim status only after the invite? 
Either way, the logic is still circular, as the marriage would have likely been with one of Yahusha's half-sisters, seeing as how Miriam was involved. Or perhaps Shalom, Salome, had daughters in addition to her two sons. Who really knows? What we do know is that it was a family affair. Aside from his mother's involvement, here is another reason. And this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his Talmudim, and they continued there not many days. Gospel of Yochanan, uh, that that should read, uh, I don't know, that's the verses off there, I got to correct that. It's right after the, uh, the Cana incident. It says his brothers were with him when departing from Cana, implying that their attendance was required at the wedding. Yochanan gives us many clues. I had earlier stated that he may indeed be the most important witness of all. Yochanan is the only writer to name the mystery woman during the Nard incident. But then also, he is the only writer to speak of the wedding at Cana several chapters beforehand. Because the bride and groom are not mentioned, I will be told it is evidence that their identities are unimportant to the narrative. Ridiculous. That's like saying Miriam is unimportant because the other three writers chose not to give her identity away. Why even mention the wedding at all? The wedding and the Nard incident may in fact bookend the other. It is in the naming of Miriam that the mystery couple at Cana has been revealed. The wedding at Cana is described to us in the following way. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Yahushua was there. And both Yahushua was called and his Talmudim to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Yahushua said unto him, They have no wine. Yahushua said unto her, Woman, what is this to me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said unto the servants, Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Yahudim, containing two or three measures of apiece. Yahushua said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bore it. Pods. It says Yahushua was called, as were his Talmudim. Therefore, even if Yochanan or Nathaniel were the bridegroom, then they too were called. Meanwhile, Miriam's role as coordinator is well established. Nobody is debating that fact. Well, you know how some people want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral? We've all met those types. One might therefore deem her request as selfish and uncalled for if there was another man of the hour. His request is even more puzzling. My hour, or I should say his response, I'm sorry. His response is even more puzzling. My hour is not yet come. What hour is he speaking of? Is he referring to his hanging from a tree or his resurrection from the grave or something else? Our clue is the wine itself. There were six jars signifying 6,000 completed years of his story, as well as the sixth day of creation when, men and, when man and woman was made. Wine was a signpost of his coming millennial kingdom. And we can read about it here in Amos. It says, Behold, the days come, says Yahuwah, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that sow seed and the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Yasharel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. 
They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them, and I will plant them upon their lands, and they shall no more be pulled up out of the land which I have given them, says Yahuwah Elohika. A sign of Yahushua's kingdom would be a scorched earth, complete with waste cities, by which wine would flow freely for the children of Yasharil. You might say that wine would be supplied but by Messiah himself. It's certainly what I'm saying. In any ways, his kingship is what I believe he's referring to when inciting the hour that has not yet come. Why turn water into wine now when there is an hour reserved for it? Miriam's problem wasn't really a problem. It's just she couldn't wait for that moment as a mother. Her comment wasn't exactly misdirected either. The connection with the present wine and the kingdom wine makes total sense when acknowledging this so-called wedding was in actuality a betrothal. Here is another clue as to the identity of the bridegroom. Again, reading from, oh, this is from uh, Song of Shaloma, chapter 3, verse 11. Come forth you, O ye daughters of Zion, and see King Shaloma in the crown which his mother crowned him in the day of his espousal and in the day of the rejoicing of his heart. We have come back around a Song of Shaloma again. The mother of Shaloma was Bathsheba. It is she who crowned him in the day of his espousal, a day we are told which was of great rejoicing. That is what Miriam ultimately did. It was before his hour, obviously, but the miracle announced who he was, mainly his kingship. It was his crowning event. It all came about because of his mother. The argument here, at least on my part, is that it happened on the day of his espousal, continuing with Yochanan. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning sets forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles that Yahusha and Cain of Galilee and, uh, and manifested forth his glory, and his Talmudim believed on him. Notice the clever sleight of hand as well as the irony. The ruler presiding over the feast did not know who turned the water to wine. Following, he didn't know, despite the fact that the servants who drew the water knew. Look who he turned to. He pronounced his amazement to the bridegroom. We are often told that Yochanan was indifferent as to who the bridegroom was, when in fact, he and the water pourers were not willing to give up his identity. The bridegroom was Yahusha. All right, we're on page 34. The, the adulteress and Miriam. Well, that went south quickly. A patrol, though, in Cana, and then sex and betrayal in the streets of Yerushalayim, and with only a few short chapters. I would obviously be amiss if I didn't include what so many others have made a personal duty to proclaim throughout the centuries, that the woman caught in adultery was none other than Miriam. If you're wondering which Miriam, it is Miriam of Migdol, who's fingered as the culprit, while Miriam of Bethany is strangely off the hook. Try not to forget that Shimon the... Parashim could not understand how Yahushua could forgive the woman whom we've already identified as a Miriam of Bethany. I think the revelation in all of this is that we're not simply dealing with sporadic episodes in the life of Messiah, 
Yochanan is the only one to mention the woman caught in adultery, which, knowing the story arch before us, isn't all that surprising. Every encounter seems to be connected with the other. The woman caught in adultery is the betrothed. Was she really caught in adultery, though? For years, I have had my doubts. Even those who haven't the faintest clue what we're talking about, that the woman was uh, being mentioned is indeed Yahushua's betrothed, will still acknowledge that something is amiss. It's almost like Yochanan has presented us with the puzzle, and it is our job to figure out if Torah has been broken or not. But before we revisit the scene, I have something else to show you. It once again derives from the Song of Shaloma, and much like the Nard episode, has all the markings of another parallel. And this is what we read in chapter 5, verse 1. I am come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I nip off my myrrh with my spice. I eat wildwood fare with honey. I drink my, my wine and my milk. Pause. The first line is attributed to the king talking. He is telling his bride where he can be found. And that location is his garden. Spoiler alert, his bride does not receive the memo. Continuing. This is spoken by his friends. Eat, my friends, and drink. And get drunk, my friends. Pause again. The second line is attributed to the king's friends. Why are they informing us about their desire to eat and get drunk and then encouraging others to do the same? Probably because they figure nothing terrible will happen to them. Not to their master, the king. Certainly not to the one person who was most precious to him, his betrothed. Somewhere along the way, they have forgotten about the enemy at the gates, but not just outside. The enemy is within. Continuing. She. I am sleeping, but my heart is aroused with the sound of my darling knocking. Open to me, my sister, my shepherdess, my dove, my flawless one. For my head is filled with night mist and my locks with the moistures of the night. I have put off my tunic. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I make them dirty? My darling put forth his hand from the hole, and my heart was moved for him. I rose up to open to my darling, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the latch. I opened for my darling, but my darling eluded me and had passed by my soul. I went forth to speak of him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. They found me, the men guarding and going around the city. They smote me. They injured me. The ones guarding the walls lifted a garment of mine. I charge you, O daughters of Yerushalayim, if ye find my darling, tell him that I am ailing of love. While the king is in his garden and the king's friends are too merry to notice, his lover awakens, aroused with the thought of the king knocking upon the door of her heart. She leaves her dwelling, hoping to speak with him. She calls his name, but he gives no answer. That is when they find her, the men who are given the task of guarding the city, Yerushalayim. You would assume guarding the city would also entail keeping the king safe, and above all else, the woman who is most precious to him, but they don't see it that way. When the men entrusted with the safekeeping of Yerushalayim see her alone, Seeking out and calling upon the king, they either chase her down or surround her and then beat her into submission. When it is apparent that she can no longer fight back, 
the watchmen of the wall lift her garment, exposing all. Is this what Ad, um, Adoniyashu's men attempted with Avishag? Seems so. Was she sexually assaulted or gang raped? The passage doesn't make that clear. What is apparent is that she was targeted by those tasked with protecting her. And now, turning to the woman caught in adultery, we read the following account. Yahushua went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Pause. Do you see what just happened? Yahushua left on his own. Nobody else is recorded as, as having left for the Mount of Olives with him. Like Shaloma, he went to the garden. We know he went there often, seeking solitude. Perhaps his betrothed went about looking for him throughout the streets of Yerushalayim and talked to the wrong people. Or the wrong people simply saw that the son of Elohim's betrothed was wandering around all alone, thinking nothing bad might happen to her. Where were his Talmudim or the other women? This was their opportuni opportune uh, moment. Best slip through the crowds and make a move before she slipped through their fingers. Continuing. And the scribes and Parashim brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Rabbi, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moshe in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what say you? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Yahushua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Yahushua was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, when Yahushua had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, No man, Adonai. And Yahushua said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The social pressure on a woman is quite enough, but then try to be the Messiah's girlfriend. Yahushua had enemies in low places and in high places but especially in high places. Imagine the son of Elohim teaching in his father's house of all places when the temple controllers drag the woman whom he loves into the crowd. They have her or they heave her into the dirt where she apparently belongs, claiming that she has had been caught in the act. How did they catch her exactly? Were they peeping through the curtains? And where is the man whom she was sleeping with? Adultery is a two-way street, you know. The man who lusted after a betrothed or married woman and went through with his passion is mysteriously absent, or so they would have us believe. Ironically, though, he is not. Or I, maybe I could even say they. The expectation is to tempt Messiah while he plays the role of the jealous husband and repudiates her. They will do anything in their power to eliminate his standing as a prophet of Elohim embarrass him while they're at it. It is clearly a setup. But here's the problem as I see it. 
They've greatly undermined Yahusha in their determination to destroy him. And their disbelief and denial, but mostly their disdain for the Most High Elohim, they have neglected to grant his son the knowledge to peer into the hearts of men. As the scene plays out, the temple controllers become ashamed of their actions. Yahusha knows exactly how it all went down, detailing each sin committed by them in the sand. It's why he says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He is, refer he is referring to this situation. By not repudiating her, by not divorcing her, even privately, and since nobody is left standing around to accuse her, their betrothal can proceed as planned. Notice what he says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The first half of the sentence seems to imply that she is free of all charges. That is how many people have taken it over the years. Contrarily, those who insist the temple controllers were accurate in their appraisal often do so because their agenda is to prove that Messiah will not judge us according to Torah and that a married woman is up for grabs. But then the second half of his line does seem to acknowledge that she had indeed sinned, despite being acquitted. Well, which is it then? Did she sin or not? Difficult to tell. If this scene played out anything like what we have read in Song of Shaloma, then she may have sinned simply by not screaming. That is a sin, you know, not screaming. It says so right here. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto a man, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die, the damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he had humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away evil from among you, Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 through 24. Was Miriam a virgin? Let's assume she was. Check. And in fact, I'm inclined to conclude that she was indeed pure at their betrothal in Cana. So again, check. Did a man find her in the city? Check. Did he or they perform some deed which would be rightfully defined as lying with her? Check. Did she scream? Hmm. We are not told. When the same scene played out in the book of Shushana, or the, uh, yeah, the book of Susanna, and the two judges appointed over the people attempted to rape the beautiful young woman, Shushana cried out. She was still framed by the two judges as an adulteress. But if you've read the story, then you know the prophet Daniel was able to expose their sins. In turn, the two judges were convicted of the sin they had pronounced upon the woman and were promptly put to death. If Miriam was betrothed and a virgin and she did not scream, then the Torah is straightforward in that she sinned. Aside from her potential sin, the woman had reason to feel shame. Perhaps she was thinking how she'd slipped up in her indiscretion and that she had put Yahusha in a terrible predicament. As a general rule anyways, women feel guilty or guilt after being raped. She was no longer pure for her betrothed. She was thinking that he would be angry with her, that he had reason to call it off. Look again at how the woman addresses Yahusha afterwards. She calls him Adonai. Time and again, that is how Yochanan has Miriam addressing him, and in the most intimate of terms. Yahusha forgave her, though, because Miriam wasn't the whore. 
Yasharel had become the whore and Yahuwah divorced them. And now Yehuda was playing the part. And within the matter of four decades, though too, would they be divorced? The Roman Catholic Church has long claimed that Miriam was an adulteress and more importantly, that she wanted it. But if what I have stated is in any way correct, then simultaneously calling her one is falling in agreement with her rapist. All right, page 40. Transitioning from Miriam of Bethany to Miriam Magdalene. Get to it, Noel. Who are we dealing with? Miriam Bethany or Miriam Magdalene? You ask me. Truly, your inquiry was delivered with impeccable timing. I've been wondering the same thing and was just getting to it. But first, to state the obvious. What I have so far covered either has nothing to do with Mar Miriam Magdalene or everything to do with Miriam Magdalene. Understand that I am not in the least bit concerned with what other historical revisionists have to say on the matter. So far, my interest has only relied upon the pages of Scripture. I have already shown you that the penitent woman and Miriam of Bethany are in fact the same person connecting us with the adulterous woman, who many have claimed is Magdalene, and furthermore, that she fits the description of the betrothed lover in Song of Shaloma. So if it comes down to one or the other, Miriam of Bethany or Miriam Magdalene, then we have our betrothed, Miriam of Bethany. It would mean that everybody else who claims Miriam of Migdol as his bride is wrong. The question of the hour is whether or not Miriam of Bethany and Miriam Magdalene are in fact the same person. Well, I believe they are. The name Miriam is mentioned 54 times in the Greek canonical New Testament and is attributed to as many as several different individuals. 13 of those mentions belongs to Miriam Magdalene alone, making her the second most identified woman in the canonical New Testament, falling only behind Miriam, the mother of Yahushua who tops out that list at 15. Miriam of Bethany is given five mentions. If Miriam of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are indeed the same person, then her number rises to 18, making her the most mentioned woman. Not that this is a competition or anything. Some people will see it that way. We are simply taking note of the prominence in the life of Yahushua. Miriam, the mother of Yahushua, is an important player, no? Well, seems like Miriam Magdalene is too. Here is how she is introduced to us in Lucas. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. And it came to pass afterwards that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the good news of the kingdom of Elohim. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil ruachoth and infirmities, Miriam called Migdal, out of whom went seven devils, and Yochanan the woman of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Shushana, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. Upon her very introduction, Miriam is specifically targeted as once having seven devils. Every description of either Miriam and Lucas's gospel, Migdol or Bethany, focuses upon their former uncleanness. Noted. But then look how Lucas first describes the other women. They had all been healed of evil ruachoth and infirmities, past tense. Both the demon and the disease are tied with one another, inferring that Magdalene had been sick once, which is interesting because her brother was sick as well. Even Yochanan and Shushana are included in this description. I can find no other information on Shushana. The brief description given to us regarding 
Yocana, which is the feminine of Yocanan, or it would be Joanna, however, is telling, troubling even. Her husband was involved with the Herods. The Sefer chronicles Shuza as Herod's steward, while most translations simply say household manager. How much money would a household manager of the Herods make exactly? I'm imagining quite the penny, or denarius. Normally, I would plant a red flag on that one. In fact, I already have a big fat red flag. Herod was a financer of spooks. You might even say he had them in his pocket and on many a street corner. Yehuda Iscariot was clearly one of them. Shuza was as well. It has been, even been argued that Yokana, or Joanna in English, is the same Junia whom Shaul claims to be related to in Romans 16.7. Yeah, Shaul was also a Herod. But let's not get off topic. Perhaps Yokana's close quarter with the Herods is why the evil Ruachoth and the infirmities which Lucas mentions are so important to this narrative. Yahusha had healed Yokana of her demons when nobody else could, thus inciting her to believe in the kingdom of Elohim rather than the kingdom which the puppet king was spinning. She became, she became one of Yahusha's financers. Miriam Magdalene was too. She financed Yahusha's ministry, telling us that she at least carried a purse in her possession. Was it old money or new money? And who is she related to? We are not told. That is simply how she's introduced to us, as one of his financiers. It has long been supposed that Eliezer was financially prosperous, but even that inquiry isn't concrete. If so, then we have another Miriam of Migdal and Miriam of Bethany connection. A connection is obviously what you're looking for. Well, so am I. I've been picking up various puzzle pieces and moving them around to see what fits. So far, here's what I have. Magdalene is derived from Magdala, an obvious reference to the town located along the Sea of Galilee near, um, uh, I don't even know what that is. Uh, oh, Tiberius. That would be Tiberius in English. We are told Migdal was, was a wealthy city known for its prosperous fisheries. In as little as 40 years, the Romans destroyed the town as punishment for its involvement in the War of the Yahudim. I checked. The distance from Migdal to Jerusalem is roughly 117 kilometers, as the bird flies, whereas Bethany to Jerusalem is only 3 kilometers. Quite the difference. Then again, if Yahushua was betrothed to Miriam of Bethany and Cana, that city is only 11 kilometers away from Migdal. Why Cana rather than Bethany? Yahushua had family across the Galilee region, and probably various other places like Bethlehem and Yehuda. Who had relatives in Cana? Was it Yahushua or Miriam or both? We are not told. And when exactly did Eliezer move to Bethany? Mums the word. Does it really matter though? It is, it's not like Yahushua didn't travel to all of those places, living in a multitude of homes, including Kephas for a time. Why, wouldn't Messiah, why couldn't Messiah's betrothed as well? One thing remains certain. Miriam of Bethany and Miriam of Magdalene are never seen standing in the same room together, as if that's not suspicious. Not only that, but Miriam of Bethany is last seen anointing the body of Yahushua as a memorial of her. Afterwards, she is never seen nor spoken of again. When next we meet Miriam Magdalene, Yahushua is being crucified. Who is she standing next to but Miriam, the mother of Yahushua? 
Here are two parallel accounts which testify it to it. Yochanan chapter 19.25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Yahusha his mother and his mother's sister, Miriam the woman of Akav, and Miriam of Migdol. And then the Gospel of Mark says this, There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Miriam of Migdol, and Miriam the mother of Yaakov the less, and Yosef and Shalom who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him until Yerushalayim. You will immediately tell me it identifies Miriam Magdalene as someone who followed Yahushua from Galilee and ministered to him, saying nothing about her role as a wife. Well then, do at least recognize that if there is no familial relationship between the two of them, then of those who are mentioned, she is the only one. It says Miriam, the mother of Yahushua, was there, as well as Miriam, her sister. Yes, Miriam had another sister named Miriam. There were two of them. Confused? Don't be. It's a long story. The story of it is that the Virgin Miriam was dedicated to the temple as a young child. And so, because Hannah no longer had a daughter, she named her next daughter Miriam all over again. Apparently, Hannah always really, really wanted a Miriam. The same sister Miriam was the mother of Yaakov the Less and of Yosef and Shalom. Yaakov the Less was one of Yahushua's 12 Talmudim, making them cousins. Nearly everyone within his inner circle was family. Oh, there were other women standing around and watching, maybe dozens or even hundreds of women, for all I know. The writers of scripture, however, seemed particularly interested in these three. Afterwards, who was overseeing his burial but Miriam of Migdol? The Gospel of Mark says, and he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the, in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Miriam of Migdol and Miriam, the mother of Yosef, beheld where he laid. Matif Yahu says, and when Yosef had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the, uh, of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Miriam of Migdol and the other Miriam sitting over against the sepulcher. That's exactly the sort of thing a widow might do. Bury her husband, or perhaps in this case, her betrothed. I'm still undecided. Look who else is present again, Yahushua's aunt Miriam. Other texts, which we do not have time for, indicate that Yahushua's death became far too much for his mother to bear, and so she returned with the new son appointed to her, Yochanan. Being adopted by Yochanan would seem rather odd if Miriam did not remain a virgin, and she had any other number of children to take care of her, but that's apparently none of my business. Let's not get distracted again. The point I'm trying to make is that Yahushua was buried, and it was his family who did it. Also, Yochanan was, would have been taking care of his aunt as his mother. Extra-canonical material indicates that even Yosef of Arimathea was the Virgin Miriam's paternal uncle. And so, if you're wondering why Yosef of Arimathea and Miriam Magdalene ran off together to France of all places, now you know it was a family affair. Even after that, who ventured to the garden on the first day of the week? You already know the answer, but I'll quote a text or two anyways. So starting in 
Matthew Yahoo chapter 28, verse 1. But late in the day of the Sabbath, as it began to grow light, to that one Sabbath to come came Miriam of Migdal and the other Miriam and beheld the sepulcher. And then in Marcus, we read chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath passed and Miriam of Migdal and Miriam, the mother of Yaakov and Shaloma, having gone to the market and bought sweet spices in order to come and anoint him. And very early in the morning of that one Sabbath, they came to make a memorial at the rising of the sun. Purchasing sweet spices at the market and for the purposes of embalming a body is exactly the sort of thing a widow or a betrothed might do. It's the little details. But we are not expected to pay any attention to that. We once again see Yahushua's aunt at her side, and then somebody else named Shaloma or Shalom. In English, she is known as Salome. I had failed to acknowledge uh, Matthew 2756 earlier, which says the mother of Zavidi's sons were also present near the cross of Messiah, watching from afar. We have been over this already. Shalom is identified as the wife of Zavidi, making her the mother of Yaakov and Yochanan, two of the 12 Talmudim. The same Miriam Shalom was very likely another daughter of Yahusha's grandmother, Hannah. Yes, she gave birth to three Miriams. Long story. And anyways, it is two of Yahusha's aunts who have arrived to shower his grave with flowers and the woman whom I'm claiming to be his widow. Because at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the king kept an entourage and it was a family affair. Within minutes, who announces that Yahusha's grave is emptied to the other Talmudim? You guessed it, but let's give it a read anyways. Now on that certain Sabbath came Miriam of Migdal early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and saw the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she ran and came to Shimon Kepha and to the other Talmudim, whom Yahusha loved, and said unto him, They have taken away Adonai out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. I had started earlier, I had stated earlier that Yochanan is perhaps the most important clue finder in all of this. He begins Yahusha's ministry with a betrothal of Cana. Technically, it begins with Yochanan the baptizer speaking of being a best man for the groomsmen, but he doesn't live to see it, obviously. That is the tragedy in all of this. I'm still under the impression that Yahusha didn't either, but then shortly after detailing their betrothal, he identifies the woman for us, if you've been paying attention. She is then exclusively involved in the discovery of Yahushua's empty tomb. We are often told that women would not make a credible witness in a situation such as this one. But, this is, but that is misdirection when, in fact, the deceased is being contrasted with his widow. Yochanan isn't even remotely interested in including Yahushua's two aunts. And why not? Miriam tells Kepha there were others with her, but we wouldn't have the slightest clue who they are or who they were if it weren't for the remaining Gospels. No, it is Miriam alone who takes the focus of this developing situation. A widow makes a far more credible witness than a former prostitute. But even still, the writers of Scripture aren't done with Miriam Magdalene yet. Who was the first person to witness the resurrected Savior? Uh-huh, same person as the other examples. I'm beginning to think she plays a central part in all this, but again, that's probably none of my business. Reading. But Miriam stood without at the sepulchre weeping, and as she wept, 
she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Yahusha had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why do you weep? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Adonai, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Yahusha standing and knew not that it was Yahusha. Yahusha said unto her, Woman, why do you weep? Whom do you seek? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Gospel of Yochanan 20, 11-15 You'll have to excuse me for taking out the highlighter on the entire passage. I did it, and I'm not sorry either. Sounds a lot like a grieving widow, if you ask my opinion. I mean, what better person to stand by the grave of a loved one, or in this case, a missing loved one, than a grieving widow? Also, if I were to die and resurrect from the dead, the very first person I'd appear to would be my wife. Assuredly, if there were others who went peeping around my empty tomb, as Kifa and Yochanan already had, I would have hidden in the bushes too. I would wait until that moment when my wife was alone, away from the group. An even starker contrast to the grieving widow and resurrected husband scenario is the fact that Miriam Magdalene turned around and did not recognize her Adonai when seeing him. She mistook him for the gardener. This little detail alone causes me to contemplate the possibility that the couple have already consummated their marriage. It is yet another stark contrast to the developing narrative. Continuing that line of thought, we read, Yahushua said unto her, Miriam. She turned herself and said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher. Yahushua said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my Yah and your Yah. Miriam of Mignol came and told the Talmudim that she had seen Adonai, and that he had spoken these things unto her, Gospel of Yochanan 20.16-18. Miriam recognized Yahushua the very moment he called her name. Yet another reminder of the words spoken between Yahushua and Miriam in private moments. We haven't gotten to those quite yet, but here is one such private moment. It is in the pronunciation of her name and nothing else that Miriam recognizes who she is speaking with. But then look at his follow-up line, Touch me not. Much has been stated regarding his instruction not to have any physical contact with him. And yet, however it is explained, the picture we are given is an intimate one. Difficult hiding that fact. Nobody else was told not to touch him. That probably has something to do with him going to the father first and then paying visits to the others each in turn. And so, that being the case, why not just go to the Father and then stand around in the garden, waiting to be touched by the first person who recognized you? According to the progression laid out before us, the answer seems straightforward enough. If I were about to make a trek to the heavens, I can once again think of one individual who I'd want to speak with, the person who I'd been intimate with. Miriam of Migdol was on his mind. All right, that's all for tonight. There's uh, more written in here, but that's going into part two. And 
I have much more to write on that. So that will conclude our reading. I hope you guys enjoyed um, Mary Magdalene, Wife of Messiah. Shalom, everybody.